Welcome to The Drill Down, the business stories behind Stocks on the Move. I'm Corey Johnson. Today is Wednesday, May 5. Well, just ahead, oil king Devon Energy is looking at a new way to embrace risk. And an electric car rivalry heats up between General Motors and Tesla. And finally, we're going to drill down on the e-commerce used car seller called Vroom with Mark Lehman of JMP Securities. But first, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by Era, a one-stop equity platform where you can seamlessly connect to any earnings call and surface actionable insights automatically. Era's AI-powered tools will allow you to work faster and smarter. That's era.com. And you can listen to The Drill Down on any of your favorite podcast platforms, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeart, TuneIn, you name it. But hit that subscribe button so you can catch every show. And remember to join The Drill Down on Twitter and Instagram at DrillDownPod. Link up with us on LinkedIn. Connect with us on our website, bizpod.net. And let us know what companies you want to talk about. Okay, I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome to The Drill Down. We're going to dig deep into the business stories behind Stocks on the Move. Joining me as always, producer extraordinaire Isaac Webster. Isaac, what's going on in the world of business today? Hey, Corey, these are the stories Wall Street was watching Wednesday, May 5th. Stocks climbing slightly higher, the Dow rising toward a fresh record, the Nasdaq just a tad lower. And all this after Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen walked back those comments from yesterday that interest rates may need to rise. Yellen clarifying today on Wednesday that she was neither predicting nor recommending that the Federal Reserve raise rates. Now, looking at those one-year results, the Dow is still up 43% over the last 12 months, the S&P up 45%, the NASDAQ is higher 54% for the year. Amazing results from the the markets uh, at large. Again, it's why we're we're down 2%. Seems like the silliest things to say when we are up nearly 50% in the last year. Exactly. And NASDAQ, I should say, is up 54% over the one year, not for the year. Now, Facebook is upholding its ban on Donald Trump. An independent panel ruled that the social network was right to ban Trump after the Capitol riot back in January. Facebook still needs to decide whether Trump will be permanently locked out of the social network. And as I've pointed out, I pointed out when I was on Yahoo Finance earlier today, that doesn't seem to have much effect on Facebook's ability um, to uh, you know, create free cash flow and watch its stock price continue to go up and to the right. Yeah. Uh, and final story here, Peloton has recalled all of its treadmills and the company's CEO has apologized. And this is after federal regulators said the treadmills were responsible for dozens of injuries and at least one death. Now, Corey, what is your first drill down? I want to look at Devon Energy, Energy that is uh, uh, the uh, oil driller that's drilling everywhere from Texas all the way up to the Canadian border. Devon Energy trades under ticker DVN. Shares rose 6% on Wednesday, and they've gained 123% over the last 12 months. What's going on with Devon? Well, a lot's going on with Devon, um, not least of which is they're choking down a $12 billion merger with WPX Energy, which they announced in September and closed right at the end of the year. They announced earnings this morning, and the earnings were good, but the outlook was even better. Um, And these guys are dealing with a lot, and I think it's interesting to look at how they are dealing with all of these business problems, not least of which the giant polar vortex freeze in February, which uh, froze production. See what I did there? (laughs) Froze froze production. I like but, the pun. But uh, still, these guys, have got they're dealing with that. They've got 2,000 employees dealing with a merger. Uh, they've got, of course, you know, an unprecedented climate situation, as I mentioned, a freeze-stopping production. And, oh, yeah, the deadly pandemic and global economic catastrophe that we've had in the last year. 
So I thought what was really interesting is that the normally conservative Devon Energy Conference call this morning, the company was talking about taking on more risk. How so? Well, you know, traditionally in the oil business, you offset risk by hedging, right? You lock in the current price and take the risk off of future prices changing, going down or going up. You've locked in a certain price. Now, Devon has historically de-risked or hedged about 50% of their production, as did the company they merged with, WPX. But on the call today, it was really interesting. The company said that they're only going to be hedging about 30% of their production uh, in the next year, sort of going forward, as they work off some of their hedges, which are based on sort of uh, option contracts, which are timed to certain months and so on. But they'll be at 30% within a year. And that's going to give them access to more downside, yes, but also access to a lot more upside uh, with what they anticipate will be a gain in oil prices. There was this interesting back and forth uh, with the CEO, Rick Muncrief, and the CFO, Jeff Rittenauer. I think a lot of companies, such as ourselves, uh, both legacy companies, uh, actually you know, weighed in. We, we had to play some defense, uh, quite honestly. And so we ended up with some hedges that if you look uh, in the rearview mirror, you know, you're, you're, um, you're leaving some money on the table, so to speak. But uh, it, was a, it was the right thing to do, we think, at that time and, and uh, kept, you know, kept confidence uh, with the investment community and, and protected cash flows, those sorts of things. As we look forward, obviously, uh, it's, it's a new world where you, you have much the scale that we now have, as, as we talk about approaching 300,000 barrels of oil a day, the balance sheet strength, all those things. We are taking a, a different view than what we have in the past. Um, I think historically, both legacy companies typically like to be in that plus or minus 50% um, you know, hedge uh, level. And from the time, it, it may be above that or below that. Uh, and that's where they on the outlook. But uh, it's where we've been uh, thus far. But I think now it's uh, with the cash flows, the balance sheets, uh, it's, it's a little, uh, little bit of a different, uh, different story. So, Jeff, what would you, what would you add to that? Yeah, no, Rick. I think you nailed it. The only thing I would add on is, is then um, to your question is we feel we feel really good again where the balance sheet is and the free cash flow generation capability sits today. Um, so you know we're roughly you know kind of on the back half of this year. I think 40% hedged as it relates to oil. Um, and then as you move into 2022, I think we're more hovering around maybe 20% hedged. We feel really comfortable with those levels to just reiterate Rick's point. And so I don't think you'll see us um, add hedges in a meaningful way um, uh, based on where we sit today and how the balance sheet feels. So, Corey, what is the acceptance of risk? It just isn't just people betting on Tesla and Dogecoin. Right. This is a company that's saying we're taking on the risk of oil prices going down because we think they're going to go up. Across mm. every, you know, every aspect of the economy, you see people taking on more risk, right? People's right. savings is their checking, and their checking is their mutual funds, and their mutual funds are, are blue chips, and blue chips are growth, and growth is late-round venture, and late-round venture is seed-round venture. And people are taking chances with their money, whether on a personal level or on a corporate level, and we certainly see that when it comes to Devon Energy. Corey, what's your next stock you're drilling down on? Just a little company known as General Motors. Oh, I think I've heard of it. Trades under ticker GM. Shares yeah. rose 4% Wednesday. They've gained 170% in a year. So interesting uh, conference call when they reported their first quarter results today. Of course, we've all heard of the slowdown in production because of uh, the inability to get semiconductors. Of course, we all know people are starting to get back to work and starting to get back on the road. And these guys want to sell some more cars. 
But what was interesting here was, you know, the the 800-pound gorilla in the room for all automakers, and that is Tesla. You know, General Motors uh, uh, is, you know, a giant company, and yet Tesla has four times the market cap as GM, even though GM made about 7 million cars last year or vehicles last year, and Tesla made just half a million. Mm. So it's just hard to get your head around. Tesla is four times bigger and yet has about, uh, you know, one eighth the production. Right. Now, Tesla's, of course, had all kinds of PR problems uh, in the way that they talk about what Elon Musk likes to call full self-driving or full FSD, which, of course, the car is not meant to be completely self-driving and fully autonomous. So it was fascinating for me to hear uh, GM CEO, Mary Barra, talk about the features in some upcoming cars. And I got to say, she sounded a lot more like a Silicon Valley CEO than a Detroit CEO. And rather than boast about fully self-driving, you know, GM, which of course has more experience with regulators than Tesla, uh, just by the virtue of the fact that it's so much older and so much bigger. Look, GM calls its drive assistant software Super Cruise. Here's what Mary Barra had to say about Super Cruise. What makes our large-scale deployment of Super Cruise and all of its new features possible is our Vehicle Intelligence Platform, or VIP, which connects every vehicle system into one advanced, high-speed, and very secure network. VIP's 4.5 terabytes of data processing power per hour represents a five-fold increase from our previous electrical architecture. That's enough capacity to manage all of the data loads of our self-driving technology, driver assistance systems, electric propulsion, over-the-air updates of every vehicle module, plus capacity to manage over-the-air updates, terabytes of it's data. It's also an enabler for software as a service, including software new apps and capabilities that we can market to our customers, such as the latest must-have trailering and parking apps. By the end of 23, VIP will be on seven million vehicles and 38 global models. Did she say seven million vehicles with Super Cruise? Seven how, million vehicles. Wow, how does that compare to Tesla? Tesla yeah. had just made a half million vehicles. These guys say they're going to have seven million vehicles with uh, uh, this autonomous system that they say can handle ninety-five percent of what you do in the car. Now, Tesla, uh, uh, you know, has had. There are some projections out there that say the company could do two and a half million cars by twenty twenty-three, which would be a substantial increase over what they've been able to produce thus far, right? It would be a 500% increase over their, uh, what they're able to produce right now. But even if they're able to do that, two and a half million isn't seven million. It's just a, what GM's talking about doing is on a whole different level. And with the things that Tesla has boasted about over time, which is over-the-air downloads of new software, software as a service, even the sale of some new apps and income uh, line that Tesla has not pursued. Um, so it'll be, uh, th- this race is on when it comes to uh, these issues of uh, assisted driving and technology and software in the vehicle. I really thought we were listening to a tech executive right there. Terabytes of data, software yeah. service, yeah. Yeah. Corey, what's your next drill down? I want to look back at Lyft, which we mentioned in passing when they reported results yesterday, but we've had a chance to really dig into these results, and they are not what they seemed. Lyft, yes, it's, it's definitely not what we seemed when we recorded the show yesterday. Lyft, of course, trades under the ticker LYFT, Lyft. Shares fell 6% Wednesday. They've gained 97% over the past 12 months. But, Corey, what have we learned about Lyft in the past 24 hours? I think what we learned is probably something we should know already, which is when— Adjusted results are the headline. 
you should probably see what those adjustments to results are. I mean, adjusting results, I had a perfect first marriage. You just have to adjust out the divorce or my golf score is just too <laughs> over par if you adjust out the bogeys and and you know if you if I scored 30 points a game but pick up basketball if you adjust out my missed shots um, you know Lyft's adjusted results uh, seem to continue to adjust with every set of results the CFO Brian Roberts um, really something he's been with the company you know for a long time since 2014 but his adjustments were super aggressive first of all they lost more money in the quarter that they just reported than they did a year ago, which is hard to do, right? But they lost $427 million in the quarter compared to $398 million a year ago. Isaac, which loss is bigger, $427 million or three million? I'm going to go with the 400 number. Yeah, well, that's unadjusted. <laughs> but when you adjust it, they get their EBITDA adjustments and what they're really adjusting off their loss. They actually... They added in new adjustments for last year's numbers. So they adjusted last year to make it worse, worse, I should say, which made this year look better. They, for example, added in, and I tweeted about this on uh, at Corey TV, and we'll retweet it on uh, at Drill Down Pod, but I actually put up their adjustments for the fourth quarter that ended in December and the first quarter that ended in March. They added in a whole new historic adjustment for insurance, as if that doesn't matter, as if certain kinds of insurance payments just shouldn't count in earnings, even though they have to pay for it. Well, that made last year look worse, which makes this year look better, adjusted. Even when they were asked about the problems of getting drivers, the CFO, uh, uh, Mr. Roberts, decided that uh, you know while the number of drivers are down and they can't get enough drivers to pick up their riders, he somehow adjusted his commentary to say, well, doesn't matter how many we have, our funnel for future drivers looks good. We're pleased in terms of when we look at our funnel, uh, we're seeing uh, growth in the number of leads coming into the funnel. And that is generally, obviously, you, you fill in the funnel and then you, you, you drive activations of new drivers. So we do expect more new drivers don't. coming into the platform as well as bringing back drivers who may have stopped driving during the pandemic. So we'll see if they bring out, you know, just because you put something in the funnel doesn't mean it comes out of the funnel. Um, uh, this, the world's very different right now, and uh, uh, the economic opportunities available to people are different right now, and the interest in driving for Lyft might be different uh, here. So we'll see, but I certainly am going to pay a lot of attention to what kind of adjustments Lyft does in the future, or any company for that matter. All right, up next, we're going to dig in. We're going to stick with the automotive sector a little bit. We're going to talk about a company called Vroom with Mark Lehman, the CEO of JMP Securities. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. ERA's event access and monitoring intelligence platform improves earnings season and the investor events in between. Through comprehensive calendar tracking, one-click event access, dynamic monitors, multicasting, and more. Powered by an advanced language processing engine which consumes 40,000-plus investor events annually across 10,000-plus global equities. Learn more at ERA.com. And remember to join the Drill Down on Twitter and Instagram at DrillDownPod. Link up with us on LinkedIn and sign up for our newsletter on our website, bizpod.net. Okay, we're going to drill down in a company called Vroom. I did say Vroom. V-R-O-O-M is the name of the company. Mark Lehman joins us right now. He's the CEO of JMP Securities. Uh, Mark, first, wh what is Vroom? I, it says something to do with cars, obviously. 
a good guess. Uh, Room is a place to buy and sell used cars, um, which increasingly is an important place uh, to do so, but it's online. And so you are not going to go down to the corner and get met by a person with a leisure suit and who's going to walk the, the, the lot with you. Um, you're going to go online and you're going to either buy or sell your car entirely on the internet and not have to worry about a whole host of things that are going to get in the way, including getting annoyed by people accosting you on the used car lot, negotiating a price and all the things that we all think are so icky about buying and selling a car. Well, to that, why, why these guys, why this company, there are a bunch of them out there. Um, Carvana is a name that comes to mind, but I see them all advertising like crazy, but they're probably advertising at people like me who are the right demographic to be buying cars. But I wonder, you know, um, why this company of, of all of them? Well, I, why, why do I choose this one? One is because you're right. It's, it, there are competitors out there, um, but it is a highly, highly fragmented market, right? Used car sales, you can imagine, let alone the dealers that sell them. Every city in the country, even small towns, have these little lots that we all drive by and wonder how they stay in business. And frankly, they do. And it's a very profitable part. The new car market is so robust, but the used car market is even more robust and more profitable. So clearly people like Carvana and Vroom are taking advantage of that. Why I like this one is it's it's hasn't had quite the ascent that Carvana has had. They've got ample capital to get to where they need to get to towards profitability. And I love their management team. I think they've got some people who really can take it to the le- next level and have done it before uh, with other companies. And I honestly think um, that the, the trend is your friend here. So our kids are not going to go down to the corner and buy a used car ever. Okay. Just like they're not going to go to the bank and meet a, go to a bank teller. They're going to use Venmo and everything else. This is the way people are going to start to buy used cars and it's just starting. And so I want to be ahead of that curve. Now you mentioned the management team and what they've done in the past. Talk to me about how they've, uh, in your words, done it before. Well, a couple of the senior managers came from booking.com and booking.com is one of the more uh, successful, um, uh, examples of uh, something that traditionally was um, used um, a new a new venue for people to use for hotels and uh, other travel, um, and they successfully navigated and became one of the destinations, and still are one of the destinations. So um, I like the fact that there's been that kind of success, and and part of that success um, had to do with really being in a very competitive um, area, um, being innovative. Um, making sure the customer experience was terrific, making sure every little thing down to very, very minute details on a website were done correctly. And uh, I met um, the management team when they had just started a room before it was a public company. I watched as they executed. I like what they're doing. And I think the past will be um, indicative of what they do with room. And this is a private company, you know, it's got a sort of in a lot of ways, kind of a Silicon Valley pedigree with not least of which has lots and lots of rounds of venture capital raised before they went public, but it's a New York based company. Right. So it's been public, you know, less than two years. Um, they had a lot of early investors. Um, it had actually had some roots in Israel uh, long, long ago, uh, but it is a New York down South company. And I think the, uh, the, the opportunity that investors had that saw uh, a few years ago was great. Um, it took a little time for them to get public, just like Carvana. But I think more and more the eyeballs and, and the destination for people is going to get to two or three of these players. Um, and, and I'll tell you one thing he told me very early on. You look at the number of people who do analytics. Um, um, I think there's 40,000 venues that sell used cars in this country. 40,000, 
right? Wow. If you look at how many of those people actually have somebody doing real true analytics about pricing and buying cars properly and selling cars properly in terms of pricing and being acute as it relates to that and knowing that, you know, whether it's an urban setting or suburban setting or a rural setting and what's selling, what's going on, pricing's very, very dynamic. And so if you can buy it slightly better and sell it slightly better, the kind of leverage you have is amazing. You know, Vroom as a young company probably has more data analytics than the other 30,000 dealers that we see on the corner. And that's going to be the competitive differentiator for them. And I think Hennessy's done it before and they're going to do it again. Well, it's interesting. I mean, it seems like that's a competitive advantage that disappears over time because we as as consumers, we have more information than ever before. Uh, The ability to sort of compare prices across the country, to shop across the country. You don't have the kind of regional uh, differences that you might have in a price of a certain car, a a bargain on a Porsche 911 in Northern California when the market is down, but but Kansas City hasn't figured that out yet. That's not the case anymore. It's, it's certainly less true, Corey, and that is a very good point. But it's also true that there still are very dynamic um, parts of this marketplace. And as we've seen in the last year, if you watch used car pricing, um, it's changed a lot and a lot um, more expensive for the buyers. Uh, that's what's going on with used car pricing. In the so last year, yeah, yeah. In the very last year, in the last few months, um, as we've gotten more used to getting back on the road and getting back in our cars and people are getting back to work, and frankly, um, as you can see from the economic numbers, they're better. So if you're not really on top of it on an hourly and a daily basis, you're failing. And I think there's lots of opportunity for companies like this to be that much better. And you're right. But 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 also remember, this is the most unpleasant part of, of, of most people's lives, walking down or to a, a, a buy a newer used car. That's about as unpleasant as, 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 as going to a funeral for a lot of people. Okay, and if you can make this as as, as easy and seamless and likable, and, and and I'll give you an example. I mean, uh, going back to the early days of advertising, I liked it so much. I, I, I sold a car on, on a long time ago. It was four years ago, but I sold a Prius on there. And the alternative was, of course, going down to the Toyota dealer or whoever. And I will tell you, it was a long time ago, and they've gotten so much better. You know, the pictures you take and the bid you get and the customer experience. But four years ago, it was so substantially better than anything else that I didn't. I, I, I'm not even sure I cared whether it was 100 or 200 or 500 dollars more or less than I deserved. How much would you pay to not spend four hours selling your car or buying a car? A lot. And I'll tell you the other thing that's fascinating about this: you'd think that most people who sell their car to this platform are like under promising, I'm sorry, over promising, you know, no dents, no, no, hasn't been through a flash flood. You know, I change the oil every day, whatever it is, you think that, you know, people are a little conniving. Guess what? It's the exact opposite. Most people under represent how good their car is because they're, you know, like most things in life, people are fundamentally good people. Most people underrepresent it. So again, I think it's one of those platforms that's going to be here to stay. I think you got to make your bets on whether they're going to be a winners and losers and Carvana and Vroom, I think, are two of those that'll be a winner, and that's why I mentioned Vroom today. I should back up just all, you know, back to 30,000 view and sort of how the business model works for this company. Yes, the consumer experience is you go online and you get a car, or you go online and you sell a car, but how, how does this business work for these guys? Well, you know, it's they're only as good as the number of cars that they have, right? They're only, they, they, it's garbage in, garbage out. So the big thing for them is procuring automobiles. Um, and, and, they're, and they're buying these cars. They're taking them on as inventory. They are they're taking them on the as cash inventory. To get them. They, are fronting, they, are, they are a two-sided marketplace, right? Just like anything else. They're making a two-sided marketplace. So they have inventory 
and they need to keep getting inventory. And they also, they not every car just rolls off the factory and they're brand new cars that have a hundred miles on a thousand miles. They're all different kinds. Obviously late models more, um, more uh, attractive to the buying public, but they're making a two-sided marketplace and they're doing everything. Literally they will, you will go online and you will send a bunch of photos of your car. You will, you will tell them about the VIN and all the things that you need in any transaction, but they will give you a bid over immediately. They will give you a bid quickly. So are the, are they, sorry, just to be clear, are, is car, I'm sorry, is, is Vroom buying the car buying and then the reselling car. it? They okay, are. so it's not, they're they not, are. they're not a marketplace in the sense that they put a buyer and seller together Absolutely to take not. a VIG. They're actually stepping in the middle and taking a position. That's correct. And they're doing, and, they're, and that includes fixing the car up a little bit. That includes who knows what it means for each car, because each car is different, just like every person is different. So they're doing a whole host of things with each car. Some cars may be so pristine, they do nothing except wax it and, you know, make it look shiny. Some cars, they're, they're probably doing some body work and doing some other things. Some cars are transporting 3,000 miles away, and that may be part of the allure, which is, again, what we talked about earlier, which is having an SUV in Raleigh-Durham is going to be different than selling an SUV in you know, Provo, Utah. And they're, 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 the more vast they are, the more data points they have, the better their information, the better they are to have a two-sided marketplace. So the same thing for the, I just told you, for the sellers, it's the buyers. They have a suite of, of, of things that they're looking for, and they'll hone in on the best ways to get you the car that you want with the right factors and they'll suggest some things and clearly they do a very good job at that. Um, but it, that's what they're it doing. Does, it does seem like there's kind of a moat here. You know, when you look in their 10K, they talk about sort of the three pillars of their business is e-commerce, which is kind of obvious, but the vehicle operations, which you're suggesting, uh, the vehicle operations being the thing that allows them to to you know, take the car on, fix up the car, get the car ready, and then of course they they reference very directly data science and experimentation, saying that data science and experimentation are at the core of everything thing we do. I, I I think you're right. You wouldn't see that on the on the clown in the leisure suit in the corner with the with the flags waving. You, you know, again, and not, this is not to belittle an industry that's been going on for a long time, but you think about how unpleasant that is. Okay, how unpleasant it is to just finagle or just say, you know, I need. I always picture that scene in Fargo where he says, "I got to talk to my manager," and the guy's watching the Gopher game and you know talks about whatever he's talking about. And the guy comes in and says, "Boy, I've never seen him do this before. You got the true coat." You know, that is the most unpleasant. We all think it's so unpleasant. This is became becoming a much more democratized way to buy and sell a car. I guess that's the best way to put it. That you're democratizing it for both people, and I think that makes it a lot easier for people. Again, even if they don't feel like got the absolute best price, they feel like they got a fair price and they got so much of their life back by not having to deal with that icky part of that. Now, when we talk about, you know, you mentioned uh, their their uh, desire to acquire cars and everything and the, and the state of the used car market today. Um, we just heard this morning from General Motors about uh, a couple billion dollars in lost sales because of their inability to um, – get semiconductors and finish the cars that they want to make. Um, that surely makes the used car market more attractive just because there's few, fewer vehicles, new vehicles coming to market. It does. And, and that's why used car pricing has exploded in the last few months, like we've talked about. Um, and, and, and with them, the more width that they get in terms of the inventory that they buy, clearly that means they have more to sell and they could be more acute in their pricing. They keep updating the website to make it a better customer experience. Um, Obviously, this is a word of mouth business and the chance to, to tell somebody that you did it on Vroom and you made it such a pleasant experience, whether you're buying or selling it. I, I mean, I was at dinner um, last night and I had a friend whose son uh, is going to law school in North Carolina needs a car. You know, he's well, I said, well, gosh, you should call Vroom. 
That's that's just so easy, and you could have it delivered where you want it delivered. You don't have to schlep it across the country and spend a thousand dollars or fifteen hundred dollars. I mean, that's something you should take a look. I mean, it's a word of mouth business, and if you've had a pleasant experience, you want to go to Vroom. They're going to get more eyeballs that way. And and talk to me about the sort of the physical aspect of this, because at the end of the day, they're they're taking ownership of and then delivering a physical uh, vehicle. They've got. Uh, what are they called in their SEC filings? Uh, reconditioning facilities. Do they own those facilities? Do they have those employees? Or are they just sort of finding garages, finding drivers and so on that work on a contract basis? You know, they have, they, they do have their own proprietary um, garages and, 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 and body work. I think as things ebbs and, and flows, they probably have ways to expand that network as more and more of this becomes the right channel. But they are they want to own the process from the beginning to the end. So they want to own it from when they buy it. They want to own it when they enhance um, uh, the car as it gets more um, attractive to a buyer. And they also want to own it for financing, right? Not everybody can pay twenty, thirty thousand dollars for a used car for cash. So along with financing and other things, clearly they're going to add on some additional, you know, bells and whistles you have, whether it's insurance or financing or other things in terms of warranties that people want. There's things like that that will enhance their product as opposed to just making money and buying and selling a car. They're going to have plenty of things to recondition, starting from reconditioning the car to when you own the car and service and warranties. They want to own that customer. And that's a great place to start is when you sell them a car. Because usually when people sell a car, they buy a new one. And that's something they want to own both. And so, uh, but on the ground, do they own a lot of facilities? Is this something that, that we need to sort of imagine this company is going to incur greater cost over time? Or are there sort of contract I don't know, uh, workers contract lots and so on that it's, you it's, have to have. I think it's both. I mean, I think they're 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 going to know what they're good at and what they're not. Obviously, if you're fixing Teslas in the middle of San Francisco, you know, it's a very specific thing. You got to use Tesla that needs some reconditioning and it's in the middle of a rural area. They're not going to have a body shop in the middle of a rural area to fix a Tesla. So they got to have both. And I think that when you own the the part of it that you do own, the, the reconditioning part that you do have it internally, is probably better control. But they probably do not have the bit wherewithal today to have that end-to-end 100% of the time. So they're going to need to have those third-party relationships. Because, again, it's across the suite of cars. And, and let's just say you get a flood of, of, of high-end sports cars. Um, you may not be able to fix up all the body work on a BMW 5 Series but you probably want to have some net relationships, some better pricing that you have. But I think they really want to own that experience as much as possible. Oh, my God. I have been on my knees praying for better pricing and fixing BMWs. <laughs> we were in the shop this week. It's crazy. So uh, uh, to that to that end, um, you know, with the used car market right now so hot, when we look out uh, into the, call it, two-year future of the uh, U.S. automobile business, there are two big factors, right? One is a big move towards electric across all vehicle manufacturers. And the second is this this lack of semiconductors now that we would hope would be alleviated in the next, call it 12 to 18 months. um, And I'll I'll say, I'll throw some cold water on the notion that came out of Intel this week that they were saying it could be a few years till things are back to normal. But if new car production picks up all of a sudden, would this be a headwind for this business? I I think it's, it's, it's unlikely. Okay, I think the as the economy grows, their share will grow. I think this is a share gain story. Okay, I think this is one of those perpetual uh, changes in the marketplace that will continue to add tailwind for them. Sure, as we get more semiconductors and the move goes to more of the the hybrid cars and the more um, electric only cars that we're seeing people making big big bets on, including GM this morning. Guess that happens every single time that somebody buys a new one of those, they sell a car. 
And that's more important. And I always say it's like water. You pour it on the ground, it's got a place to go. You pour, yeah, they want pricing to go up and more volume. Pricing goes down a little bit and they get more volume, they're happy too. They want to own more of this marketplace. And this marketplace is so early, Corey, that they're going to have plenty of tailwinds from that alone. And are there other growth potentials that are, are they sort of the, the regions in which they're based are sort of not limited by the internet, but it probably is limited on sort of the place where they have operations, either contracted or fully owned to go out and acquire, sell, repair, whatever cars. Uh, it's, it's becoming less limited by geography and, and because of the nature of it online and because of the size that they have, one of their competitive advantages, like you said, with Carvana is that they're really, it's, if you're not one or two or three in this marketplace, it's going to be really ha- hard to have that for all the geographies and all the type of cars that they're talking about. I think they're large enough and have enough of a capital base where they'll be able to do that now. And so they're one of the halves in this marketplace and it's going to continue to grow. And so I'm less worried about that as a competitive negative as opposed to a competitive positive. And kind of interesting, the the use of data. I mean, uh, we saw results from Camping World this week, and I thought one of the interesting comments on the call was that when they knew they couldn't get new inventory, they were able to use their data mining to understand their customers. The, The suggestion was they were able to increase their inventory of used vehicles by figuring out who wasn't using their RV and able to go to those people, acquire the stuff and put a put a have a new use new to camping world, a used vehicle to put in inventory and to sell. And I would imagine the same is true of room. They're going to know their customers better over time and figure out the places where inventory might present itself. This is a game like all these uh, platforms, Corey, where you know your customer better than anybody else. And so when you know where they live geographically, you know how much money they spent on a used car, you know how many times they went to the site, you know they were looking at. Suggestive advertising is just around the corner for them. So layering on AI on top of a digital platform that is basically superior to anything you could offer from a physical, uh, except for walking that proverbial, you know, used car lot, everything else is better this way. And they just know their customer better and they're going to have a lot more opportunity to sell them higher value added products on top of just doing the buying and selling of that used car. And the last thing I'll mention is there hasn't been a lot of top line growth in the last year for this business or the last couple of quarters. Is is the continued constriction around the number of vehicles available going to keep them from growing top line? I, I think they have... Um, COVID, we're anniversarying some of that. COVID definitely restricted their growth. They had to reanalyze kind of their business model. A lot of things stopped a year ago. Um, if you remember in the second quarter with COVID kind of coming on strong, I think they've got adequate capital. They've learned a lot. Um, I think they're they're doing better um, in terms of getting the car pricing right, buying more vehicles. I'm optimistic that you're you're paying not the super premium that you'd have to pay with Carvana for this, and management's going to figure out. And I think they already have how to grow that top line and do it profitably. Adequate capital being the perfect segue to our bite, which we'll get to in a minute. But first, I want to thank you, Mark Lehman, the CEO of JMP Securities. Uh, how can our listeners connect with you and with JMP? Well, we have a website. So if you go to JMP Securities or jmpgroup.com, you can find us and you can certainly find me. And I should, I should ask, should have asked at the beginning, have you guys done work for these guys or underwritten any deals? We help take them public court. We've done a secondary for them and uh, we like them. We obviously follow research on them as well. Um, so people should read up on it. It's a great story. Great stuff. All right. Mark Lehman, JMP Securities CEO. Thank you very much. And up down next on the drill down, we're going to do the bite, that one number that tells us a lot. It will be related to Vroom. Because I, as I mentioned, Vroom was a serial fundraiser raising eight rounds of venture funding before its IPO. Uh, 
Guess how much it raised in those private venture rounds will have that number with the drill down bite when the drill down continues. The drill down is brought to you by ERA, the equity platform with event intelligence and insights for fundamental investors. Seamlessly connect to any earnings call and take advantage of ERA's AI powered tools. Work faster and smarter with ERA.com. And please subscribe to us at your favorite podcast platform, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeart, TuneIn, we're everywhere, but hit that subscribe button and catch every episode of The Drill Down. And remember to join The Drill Down on Twitter and Instagram at Drill Down Pod. Link up with us on LinkedIn and sign up for our newsletter on our website, bizpod.net. Okay, Vroom is the subject of our Drill Down Bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot. Isaac, I said they raised eight rounds of venture funding, which is a lot before their IPO. Guess how much the company raised in those private rounds? Uh, I'm not good at doing this, but I would say let's just go with like a billion dollars. $712 million raised in private investment rounds before the IPO, according to Crunchbase. Uh, so those are some uh, big numbers in the bank before they did the IPO, but this is not a necessarily capital-light business if they're buying and selling so many cars. Um, interesting business at that with Vroom. Thanks, Mark Lehman, for bringing that to us. All right, and thank you for listening to The Drill Down. I'm Corey Johnson. He's Isaac Webster. We are here every weekday trying to tell you the business stories behind some stocks on the move. Uh, and please follow us online at Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, at Drill Down Pod. Uh, you can find us on LinkedIn. And of course, come to our website, bizpod.net, and subscribe to our newsletter and hit that subscribe button on all of your favorite podcast apps. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.